the scripture for the message this morning is from John chapter 6, starting with verse 41, John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that come down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will, be taught, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for coming before us and being willing to speak a difficult word to us, Lord. It was a difficult word for others to receive so many centuries ago, and for some of us in particular, it will be a difficult word for us to receive today. But Father, you only speak hard things so that you can lavish your grace upon us, and I pray that you would do just that, Lord. I pray that as we ponder your words I pray, Father, that as I preach what you have put on my heart, I pray that you would be stirring in your people by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would encourage some. I pray that you would humble some. I pray that you would save some. I pray, Father, that you would take this most famous and difficult passage and use it powerfully in our lives today. For the sake of your name and for the joy of our souls, we pray these things. Amen. Because of the mercy and the heart of Jesus and because of the power of of the hand of Jesus, he fed about 20,000 people with nothing more than the provisions of the poor. Specifically, he took five barley loaves and two pickled fish, and somehow, some way, again, by the strength of his hand, he multiplied those things and he fed the multitudes. The people who were fed were amazed by Jesus, and therefore, they concluded that he was indeed the prophet that Moses had spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He was the one for whom they had been waiting for so long and about whom there was so much anticipation. And because of this, they decided that they were gonna seize Jesus and force him to be their king. But our Lord entrusts himself to nobody but his father alone, and he knew that his time to reign had not yet come. And so he put his disciples in a boat, he sent them across the Sea of Galilee to the western side, to the city of Capernaum, and as for himself, he withdrew into the hills to pray and to be with his father. While the disciples rode and rode across the stormy sea, for nine hours they strove to reach the other side without success. Jesus was praying and seeking the will of his father, and at some point the father made clear to him that he wanted him to go out to the disciples on the water by walking on top of the tumultuous waves, and Jesus in obedience to his father, did just that. We learn from the Gospel of Mark that it was about 3 a.m. when Jesus reached the boat. 
And he spoke to his disciples. He calmed their fears. They welcomed him into the boat. And by some miraculous means, he got them immediately to the destination to which they had been sent. He did this to amaze their souls, and he did this to glorify his own name in their eyes. The next day, many of those who had received the bread from Jesus also made their way to Capernaum because they wanted to find him. And there they found him in the synagogue where he was in conversation with people and they themselves engaged him in conversation. So the picture is that you have the next day Jesus at a synagogue with a number of people that have come across the sea, but also there are Jewish leaders, also there are Jewish worshipers, and perhaps even there are Jewish travelers who were going through the city of Capernaum. We think that at this time, Jesus' mother and brothers were living in the city of Capernaum, so perhaps they were there. Perhaps the official whose son had been healed not too long before was there. But whatever the case, there was a number of people present. It was a mixed crowd, and they began to engage in conversation. Since Jesus came full of truth, since he came willing to say to people what is true, he confronted the crowd with the fact that their intentions were not the best. Although they had seen his mighty hand and although they had at least in part discerned his identity, the truth is that they sought him out because they wanted more food. And maybe they sought him out because they wanted the power that would be theirs if he became their king. You see, in forcing him to be their king, they weren't just thinking of him. They're thinking of themselves. They want political position. They want political power. They want to be the ones to rise up and finally overcome the enemies of Israel. They were seeking Jesus because of what they wanted to get out of him, not because they were interested in who he actually was. And so Jesus, in love, confronted them with the truth. He was not afraid to tell people the truth. But Jesus also came into this world full of grace. And because he came full of grace, he urged these people to strive for the food that is truly food, namely himself. Jesus taught them that since he is the true bread of life, he is superior to the manna that God the Father gave to Israel in the days of Moses. And he taught them that whoever eats the bread of his being would live forever, would never be condemned, and would in fact be raised to eternal life on the last day. He taught them that the way to eat the bread of who Jesus is is by believing in Jesus and believing in Jesus and believing in Jesus and seeking him for who he is all the days of their lives. As the famous pastor Augustine would say some years later, he said, believe and you will have eaten. And Jesus was trying to teach the people this. As the Lord drew his comments to a close, he again confronted them with the fact that although they had seen him, they still did not believe in him. But then he said that everyone that the Father gives to the Son will indeed come to the Son. So that the problem in this situation was not Jesus' style of ministry or whatever. The problem in this situation was the hardened hearts of the people. And he assured them that if they would come, if they would soften their hearts, he assured them two times that he would raise them again from death in the last day. If they would eat of the bread of life, not even death would take away from them the life that he had given to them. This brings us now to verse 41 in the passage for today. After saying these things, in my mind's eye, I picture Jesus just being silent and waiting on the Lord, probably praying silently in his heart, but just patiently waiting to see what would happen next and what would be said. 
While he was patiently waiting, the people began to grumble. They began to talk amongst themselves. They began to murmur. And their behavior was, of course, if you just think about it for a second, reminiscent of the grumbling of the Israelites back in the desert. You remember when God led his people through the time of the desert, they were grumbling about everything. It seemed that no matter what God did, they found a way to complain about it. Isn't that right? Like no matter how many times God answered their prayers, they found a way to look to God and say, this isn't good enough. This isn't what we really wanted. They even grumbled about the manna that God gave to them in the desert. God was miraculously feeding them. God was doing things no one had ever seen and no one has ever seen in the history of the world since, and it wasn't good enough for them. They complained and they complained. And now they're looking at Jesus and they're demanding of him that he bring down that manna that they were formerly grumbling about. They're grumbling still because their hearts were grumbling hearts. Not much had changed in the nation of Israel, beloved, is the point. Specifically, they were baffled by this statement, and you'll see this in verse 41. They were baffled when Jesus said, I am the bread, the one that came down from heaven. That was just perplexing them. They couldn't get their minds around it. They said to each other, they said, we know who this guy's father is. We know who Joseph is. As I've told you before, at this time, Joseph was probably dead by now, but they still knew who his father was. They said, we know who his mother was. And the clear implication is that they know the town where he came from. And so since they knew that he was from Nazareth, it just made no sense to them whatsoever that he was claiming to be from heaven. A prophet, indeed, is without honor in his own country. Jesus was aware of their musings, and so when the time was just right, when the people's hearts were just ready, he spoke to them in verses 43 and 44 and just said, don't grumble amongst yourselves. Stop murmuring. Stop wondering about these things. Just humble your hearts. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And for those people, I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 37, Jesus taught that every single person that the Father gives to him will in fact come to him. It's a guarantee. It's going to happen. And now in this verse here, Jesus adds to this by saying that the way these people come to him is that God the Father draws them to the Son. And the reason their hearts were hard against Jesus is not because the style of his ministry was wrong. It's not because he was saying the wrong things in the wrong ways. It's because their hearts were hard and God had not acted upon their hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. The word here for draw in the Greek language is a very strong word. It literally means to tug or to drag somebody or something. It's used of drawing a sword, and and when it's used in that way, it's not just sort of a, a, a show like, here, let me draw out my sword and show it to you, but I better draw out my sword quickly because I have to fight. It's a strong word. It's used in Acts 20 of of the people grabbing Paul and dragging him out of the temple against his will. This is a very strong word. The only reason people come to faith in Jesus Christ is because God the Father draws them. He drags them, essentially. Now, this does not mean that he forces them against their will to come to Christ, but what it does mean, the reason such a strong word was chosen, is because it does mean that God powerfully and persuasively moves upon a human heart until they see the beauty of Christ, bow their lives before Christ, and surrender their hearts to Christ. The way people are saved, Jesus is saying, is that God the Father works upon their heart until their heart wants exactly what God heart, God's heart wants. And what God's heart wants 
is for us to believe in Jesus, to feed upon him, and therefore to live forever. In some ways, this is a pretty straightforward teaching, and it's not that difficult to understand. Anybody that can read well, you can read the text and see what it says. But in other ways, this is a difficult teaching because it implies that God the Father ultimately says who gets eternal life and who does not get eternal life. And because this teaching is so difficult, some have argued over the last few centuries that what Jesus is really teaching here is something called prevenient grace rather than what I would call compelling grace. So for the next couple minutes, I just want to contrast for you prevenient grace and compelling grace. Prevenient grace, some people say, is the grace that God gives to every single human heart so that they can make a valid personal decision about whether or not they're gonna believe in Jesus Christ. They believe that God the Father equally draws every person to Jesus and then leaves the final decision inside of their hands. This is what they call prevenient grace. I think in this text, it's very difficult to make that argument because if that was true, why would Jesus be saying this to people who were not believing in him? Why would Jesus be saying to him, the reason you're not believing is because the Father has not drawn you, if in fact the Father has drawn you? But that is what some people teach. And to strengthen their point of view, they often point to John 12, 32, which we'll look at in some months from now, where Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw who to myself? Do you remember? I will draw all men to myself, right? I will draw all people to myself. So that definitely does sound like Jesus is saying, when I am lifted up on the cross, I'm gonna draw every single human being to me. But when we look closer at what he's saying, he's actually talking about Jewish-Gentile relationship. He's not talking about the universal offer of salvation. And what I mean is that Jesus is essentially saying, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all kinds of people to me and not just the Jews. The Jews thought that God was their God alone and that the Messiah was going to come to be the savior of the Jews alone and Jesus is trying to explode their vision to say no, no. God is the God of the earth and I have come to be the savior of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of who? Not just the Jews, but of the whole world, right? Jesus was not saying, when I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw every single person to myself in the same way and with the same strength. That's simply not what he was saying. The reason some people teach the doctrine of prevenient grace is because they're confused or perhaps they're offended by the doctrine of compelling grace, which I do think is uncomfortable. It is as it is, the Bible clearly teaches. Compelling grace is the grace that God the Father gives to some of his own choosing by which he powerfully persuades them to bow their knees to Jesus and surrender their lives to Jesus. It's not as though he offends their will. He acts upon their will and shapes their will until their will is his will. And while this teaching is uncomfortable in some ways because it puts the final say on God's shoulders, I think it's inescapable. And let me just point you to one other place in the Gospel of John that we've seen. We literally could just spend 30 or 40 minutes here looking at a number of texts but let me just point you to one place, chapter one, verses 12 through 13. I remember spending some time when we were there, we probably spent 10 or 15 minutes talking about this there, so I'm just gonna read them and move on, and if you're interested in the details, you can go back and listen to that message. But in chapter one, verses 12 and 13, John wrote, but to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And how did that happen? How did they get that right? Right? 
They were born not of blood, so not of their ancestry, not of the will of the flesh, not of the decision that they made for themselves, not of the will of man, which more properly translated is the will of a husband, so it's not the, a father acting upon his children that caused people to become God's children. No, they were born of God. They were born because God made a decision about them. And as mysterious as this is to us, as hard as it is for us to understand that God chooses some and not others, we just have to recognize that he is God and we are not. And he is free to dispense his grace in any way he wants to dispense his grace. Those he condemns are fully deserving of condemnation and those he saves are fully undeserving of the grace that they have received. Of his own heart, God chooses whom he chooses. Praise be to his name. And since human beings, or excuse me, let me just say that the gospel, the teaching of the gospel of John is absolutely clear. And if you don't believe me that it is clear, I'd be glad to talk with you about these things, not as an argumentative partner, but as a true conversation partner. I know some of these things are not easy to understand, but I think at the end of the day, John is pretty clear. People are born into the family of God by believing in Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of eternal life. And this happens because God the Father acts upon their hearts and powerfully draws them until they bow their knees before Jesus and surrender their lives to Jesus. Beloved, this is compelling grace. You understand why I choose the word compelling? It's because eventually it overcomes our resistance and compels us to see the beauty of Jesus. I remember the night I got saved, October 26, 1986. I'm one of the lucky guys who can pinpoint right when I got saved. And I got saved because for the first time in my life, I saw the beauty of Jesus. And I could not help, I could not help but give up drugs and give myself to a much, much better Savior. When people come to Christ, they have a legitimate choice to make and they do make a legitimate choice. When people reject Christ, they have a legitimate choice to make and they do make a legitimate choice. But the bottom line is that human beings will only do what they truly desire to do and they will never believe in Jesus because they don't actually desire to believe in Jesus. They may want the insurance policy, they may want the benefits, but they don't want him unless, unless, God the Father somehow acts upon the human heart unless the Father somehow compels a person to believe. And when the Father does that, when the Father draws someone to the Son and gives them eternal life, Jesus again reiterates at the end of verse 44, now for the third time he reiterates, he will raise them up on the last day and he will give them eternal life. And I think what he's saying is that when I give you the bread of life, nobody will ever be able to steal it away from you. When I give you new birth, when you come into the family of God, when you come to belong to the one who has created you and who has been so kind to you all the days of your lives, nobody can ever remove you from his family. Even death cannot stand between you and your Savior because he has the power of life and death and he will raise you up again on the last day. Jesus was well aware that his teaching at a number of levels, levels was controversial and difficult to receive, including the fact that he was claiming to hail from heaven when he in fact grew up in Nazareth. And so if you'll look there in verse 45, you'll see that he quotes, he says, it is written in the prophets, that is in the, the second part of the Jewish Bible, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. These words come from Isaiah chapter 54, and it probably won't surprise you to hear 
that Isaiah 54 comes right after Isaiah 53. Isn't that a profound thought? Anybody remember what's in Isaiah 53? Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 12, the end of that chapter, is one of the most clear, compelling, and powerful prophecies of the coming of Jesus and the substitutionary death of Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. It is so powerful. It is so clear that it is an inescapable marker of the one who will come and give his life for the world. As soon as Isaiah is done articulating this prophecy, he continues in chapter 54 now to make a promise about the new covenant. And it's an amazing thing that he says. I won't go into all the details, but he does talk about God's unbreakable covenant of peace when he says this. He says, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So I don't know where you all are gonna vacation this year. I get the privilege of going up to the North Shore for a few days and then I'm gonna go to Southeast Minnesota for a few days because I really enjoy the bluffs a lot. And when I'm sitting there looking at those hills or if you're somewhere in this country where you can look at hills or mountains, look at those things and tell yourself, that before those things will ever be removed, God will be faithful to you forever and ever and ever. The hills are a sign of the faithfulness of God. And then after promising this to his people, Isaiah goes on to say that God will build for his people an impenetrable and glorious dwelling place for them. And then as soon as he says that comes the saying that Jesus quoted in verse 13. All your children will be taught by God and great shall be the peace the shalom, the wholeness of your children. Beloved, Isaiah chapter 54 is a new covenant promise that is built upon the new covenant prophecy of Isaiah 53, you see? And all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus because all of them are being and have been accomplished by Jesus. Jesus is the steadfast love of the Lord that will never depart from those who believe. Jesus is the peace the shalom, the wholeness, the wellness of everyone who comes to the Lord. Jesus is the compassion of the Father pouring out upon his people. Jesus is the one who will build, and in fact, he will be the dwelling place of God that is so glorious and is so impenetrable and is so secure. And Jesus is the Lord. He is the Yahweh who will come and dwell among his people. He is the God who will teach his people face to face, heart to heart, soul to soul, so that the shalom of their children will be very, very great. The people, of course, did not understand what Jesus was saying at the time. But I think as we meditate on these words, what we can see is that he was appealing to Isaiah 54 to say that he was claiming nothing new for himself. He was saying something like this, do not be surprised that I grew up in Nazareth, but that I am claiming to descend from heaven. Everyone who has learned from the Father, everyone who has heard from the Father will come to me. Everyone who has meditated on the words of God, including Isaiah 54, 13. Everyone who has discerned the will of God knows eventually they will know that I am the one who has come to fulfill the purposes of God. I am not claiming anything new. I am not claiming to do anything new, rather, I am claiming to fulfill very old prophecies in your sight, and I have performed more than enough signs to prove that what I am claiming is true. In a nutshell, I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to these people. 
Now for those who had in fact read the words of God and who had in fact discerned the will of God and who saw in Jesus the one who came to fulfill the purposes of God, he makes clear in verse 46 that this doesn't mean that they've ever seen God face to face. He says again, as it said in chapter one, that no one has ever seen God except him who had dwelt with God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the one who had dwelt with God shares in the very nature of God. And so to have a relationship with him is to have life and to have life eternal. They may have heard the words of God, but beloved, Jesus is the word of God. He is the bread of life. He is the one who came to save everybody who will look to him and believe. His point is that If they knew the words of God before, then they would not be surprised by the claims of his mouth now. And so he reiterates his teaching in verses 48 through 49. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Now when he says that they died, I do believe that he's talking about the fact that they physically perished off the earth. Of of course that generation died, just like every generation dies until the Lord Jesus comes. But I think more profoundly he's saying that they died spiritually. They may have enjoyed this bread from heaven, but they were never alive in God. And I get this from a couple places in the New Testament, so if you'll keep your finger here and first turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read with you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll turn to one other place to understand what Jesus is saying here. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, and he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, the fathers of the Jews, were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Here's a key part of this. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So Paul was saying that the Israelites of old, unbeknownst to them, had actually feasted on Christ in the wilderness, okay? However, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the question becomes, why were they overthrown in the wilderness? Why was God not pleased with them? What happened here? Well, I think Hebrews has the answer for us. So if you look at Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse 17, and then I'm gonna read into the first portion of four because it teaches us what happened to them. And the reason it's telling us what happened to them is because the author doesn't want this to happen to us. So please listen carefully. We especially who come to church all the time and who have known Christ for quite a long time, we are susceptible to the very things that took the Israelites down. So please hear, please hear God's word. Hebrews 3.17, and with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they, the Israelites, were unable to enter into the fullness of the promises of God because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, they did not believe. 
So when Jesus said that the fathers of Israel ate the manna in the wilderness and died, he was primarily referring to their spiritual relationship with God. He was primarily referring to their lack of belief. And now he's talking to people who are demonstrating unbelief as well. Why? Because they're grumbling against him. Though these people in the past had received so much grace from God, they had seen so many miraculous works of God. We have to read about the parting of the Red Sea. They saw it with their eyes, beloved. And yet they still would not put their faith in God. Instead, they grumbled and they grumbled and they grumbled themselves to death. I remember telling you all when we were in Deuteronomy or wherever we were, we were talking about some of the grumblings of Israel, and I remember telling you that if you see a grumbling spirit raising up in your soul, you need to think to yourself, I have cancer, because that's how serious it is. In fact, it's more serious because it can end in eternal death, and that's what happened to these people. They ate that miraculous bread in the desert, but they died an eternal death, not just a physical death, because they refused to believe. But since Jesus wanted his hearers to avoid their fate, he wanted the people he was now talking to to believe. He said this in verses 50 through 51, so we'll turn back to John now. John 6, 50 through 51. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. It's not the manna. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread come down from heaven. Before he had said he is the living water, and now he adds he is the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now to this point, Jesus has been vague about what he means by comparing himself to bread. He's just thrown that out there, but he hasn't really explained himself. And now, for the first time, he explicitly says that by the word bread, he means his body. He means his physical flesh. And while he had just multiplied five barley loaves and two pickled fish to feed 20,000 people the day before, he was now claiming that he was going to feed the entire world the bread that was his body. Jesus was saying that he was about to give himself for all of humanity without exception and without distinction. Now, the ESV here says that Jesus was gonna give his life for the world. And that's not a horrible translation, but the Greek word behind it literally means in behalf of the world. And that's an important distinction because somehow Jesus is saying that he is going to offer his body in substitute for the world. Somehow he's going to stand in the place of humanity and give himself to God for the sake of others. I will give myself in behalf of the world is what Jesus is saying. Now we know, if we've read the rest of the story, we know that he's referring to the cross, isn't he? We know that he's saying he's gonna surrender himself to the Father and endure unspeakable suffering and the pain of death. And we also know because of what he's just said that the only ones who are actually going to eat of him and gain life from him are those whom the Father powerfully draws to him so that they will eat. We know these things, beloved, but the ones hearing him that day did not know what he was saying and so now their grumbling, their murmurings, their wonderings turn to hot disputations. In fact, when it says in verse 52 
that the Jews began, to, or the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, "How can this man give his flesh to eat?" The word therefore disputed is very strong. In fact, it sometimes refers to a physical fight. It's very strong. And so the picture here is not that they were fighting with each other, but that they were beginning to be united against the teachings of Jesus so that they were ready to do him physical harm. The temperature of the room was rising very high, very high. Jesus and his disciples were actually in imminent danger, beloved. Who knew what the crowd was gonna do when they let anger grip their hearts? But Jesus amazes me, he really does. He really does. I remember the other day I was studying for hours. I came up from our basement where I was studying and I saw Kim and she said, how you doing? I said, I'm doing great, but I'm just tripping out on Jesus right now. And what I meant was I can't believe what he did next. If I was in his shoes, I would have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, just let me explain myself. Let me be a little bit more clear about what I'm trying to say. Let's, let's, uh, let's back off a little bit. We don't need to be angry. Let me just help you understand what I'm saying. Jesus did not say that. He dug in harder. He pushed harder. He dug in deeper. Look what he said. Let's see, I gotta find my place here. I think verses 53 through 55. Truly, truly, I say to you, with all my heart, I say to you now, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For the fourth time now, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Although it was implied in what Jesus had already said, he now explicitly stated that these people must eat his flesh in order to live. And while they surely knew that he wasn't teaching cannibalism, they were Jews after all, they were very confused and they were very offended by his words. And to make matters worse, he added to his previous teaching now by saying that they had to do what? Besides eating his flesh, they had to do what? They had to drink his blood. To the Jewish ear, beloved, this was not so much grotesque as it was profoundly offensive. You probably know that from the beginning, Jews were forbidden to eat blood, right? Genesis 9.4 says this. This is far, almost as close to the beginning as you can get but you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is, with its blood in it. The Jewish mind was absolutely opposed to the consumption of blood in any way, shape, or form. And so strong was this impulse in the Jewish heart that even after Christ had died and risen again and founded his church, we find the church gathered in Acts chapter 15 answering the question, do Gentiles have to act like Jews in order to be Christians? Their answer to that question was no, and yet in the letter that they sent through the apostles to the churches throughout the world, they said, avoid eating blood. Do not eat blood. This was a a deep, passionate conviction in the Jewish heart, beloved. And so for the Jews listening to Jesus, his insistence was repulsive. It was extremely offensive, and Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was saying. Do you understand why I was tripping out on Jesus? He pushed them harder. He got as close to the hottest button he could find, and he pushed it. He pushed it. He knew what he was doing. He boldly proclaimed the truth and insisted that unless they partook of his flesh and blood, they could not live. 
Unless they partook of his flesh and blood, they would be just like their fathers in the wilderness who may have had some kind of relationship to God, but in the end died. Died spiritually and not just physically. But if they did partake of his flesh and of his blood, they would have eternal life and they would have the promise of resurrection. For Christ continued with these words in verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh, whoever drinks my blood, abides in me, remains in me, stays with me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live forever because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers who ate and who died. Whoever feeds on this bread, this bread that is my flesh, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Beloved, Jesus is saying that by eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood, we become one with him even as he is one with God the Father. This is a profound doctrine that he will develop in chapters 13 through 17 and we'll take plenty of time to really try to digest it. It is one of the most central and one of the most profound teachings of, uh, of the scripture, anywhere in the scripture. And the way to gain entree into that kind of deep fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is by eating his flesh and by drinking his blood. And the reason those who feed on Jesus get eternal life is because they become one with the God who is life. Even as Jesus is one with the Father, so we become one with Jesus by feeding on him and feeding on him and feeding on him. Do you see, he wasn't interested in backing off of his teaching. He was interested in offending them so that they would believe. You'll see in verse 59 again, we looked at this just, a sec- just a, for a second last week, but you'll see in verse 59 that he taught these things in the synagogue as he was in Capernaum. And I wanna say that that's a meaningful sentence. It's not just a minor detail. Jesus said these things to Jewish leaders and to Jewish wor- worshipers as well as to the Jewish crowd who had followed him from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Please hear he said these things to people who think, thought that they believed in God. He said these things to people who knew the Bible fairly well and who probably were at the synagogue all the time. They were engaged in the life, of the, the worshiping life of the people of God and they thought that they had believed. These are the kinds of people he was speaking to. He said these things to people who thought that they had intimacy with God and maybe they had a kind of knowledge of him, but in fact, the truth of the matter was that they didn't know God and we can know that for sure because they were so angry at Jesus. Jesus' point is that if you truly know God, you wouldn't be so angry at me. But I want us to understand, beloved, that Jesus endeavored to teach these particular people because he loved these particular people. He wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to walk away from that hardness of heart that would cause them to die in unbelief. He well knew that not every one of them would believe, but I think he also knew that some of them, as they stewed on what he had to say, would eventually be persuaded and believe. We see in the book of Acts that many Jews throughout the country came to faith in Christ. How do we know that not some of these very people had come to faith in Christ later? For now, they're angry, but... In the long run, Jesus had their best in mind. I want us to understand he came to Capernaum to confront with truth so that he could lavish them with grace. He was there, beloved, so that some might be saved. Now as for us, a few years after these things took place, the Lord Jesus led the apostle John to write these things down. 
And over centuries of time, God has caused these things to be preserved until they've come down to us this very day so that we could meditate upon them, so that we could understand them, and so that we could believe. And since we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story, we know for sure that to eat the flesh of Christ is to believe that his body was broken for us and broken for our sins so that we might have communion with God. Since we know the rest of the story, we know that to drink his blood is not to literally pour a cup of the blood of Jesus and drink it, but to drink his blood is to believe that his blood was shed on our behalf so that all of our wickedness would be washed away and we could be one with God forever and ever. We know that he shed his blood to seal his promise to us, that he would never leave us, never forsake us, and would in fact raise us up on the last day. This is what it means to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. As Augustine said, believe and you will have eaten his flesh. And we can add, believe and you will have drunk his blood. For by believing in him, beloved, We will live forever, and even if we die a physical death, we will live because he will cause us to be raised from death. Our Father, we thank you for this word that you've spoken today. We thank you that on some day a long time ago, you were not afraid to say hard things to your people, and we thank you that on this very day, you're not afraid to come near to us and say hard things to us. We thank you that you're not afraid to confront us with truth so that you can lavish us with grace. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we take these elements, as we receive the bread and the cup, I pray that we would think more so of your flesh and of your blood that was broken for us and that was spilled for us. I pray that we would be reminded of what we believe. I pray that we would be reminded of the eternal life that we have in you, the life that we enjoy now and the life that we will enjoy forevermore because you are so great and you are so gracious. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who is particularly burdened and just needs a helping hand from you. Father, I pray that through the reiteration of this promise that they would be encouraged. And I thank you now, Father, for what you'll do in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. Amen.